0: Welcome, everyone, to the weekly spotlight from Diversity and Apps. My name is Kabir Seth.
1: And I'm Amy Kraft.
0: And we're so happy that you guys could join us. We are recording on the Wednesday after the election. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, Diversity and Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, and educators. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need For Inclusive, Equitable, and Diverse Children's Media. And so this podcast is one of the ways that we do that. Um, Every week we send out a newsletter highlighting articles we found that relate to diversity and inclusion. Um, We pick some of them to talk about on this podcast and hope that you share them with like-minded folks as well as sharing that, that newsletter which usually comes out every Sunday. So before we jump into the article this week, we also um, wanted to, to sort of touch a little bit on the uh, the election that we had um, last night, I think both Amy and I were up quite uh, quite late um, <laughs> watching it, and you know certainly it had a, a profound um, effect on us and sort of the the work that we do um, with diversity and apps and um, Amy, I, I know I, I saw your Facebook post today. You had quite a bit of thoughts on sort of, you know, when, when you couldn't sleep, when you tried to go to bed, um, what have you sort of been able to crystallize sort of what, what you've been thinking?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think listeners of our podcast will not be surprised that this election did not go the way that we wanted. Um, and really thinking about, the values that not only I hold dear, we hold dear as an organization, um, but what we want the country to look like. Um, you know, and obviously we work towards what we want our media to look like. But I have to say, when I couldn't sleep, how I calmed myself was really thinking about what can I do today? What can I do today? What can I do tomorrow? What can I do every day? To pract- put those values better into practice, you know, so the work we do in diversity and apps, I feel is one of the most active ways I participate in making sure other voices get heard that like, I really want to celebrate who we are as a country, meaning everyone in this country, so that kids can see themselves in this country. So it feels like the election was a little bit of our rejection of that. But I just want to Like, we can mentor students, we can continue with the work of making children's media better for all kids, you know, and I even have things on my list, I want to support the farmer's market more, I want to see more art, I want to get into nature, I want to install solar panels on the top of my building. You know, there's like a lot of stuff that's like, what are our values, and how can we now energize ourselves to put those values into practice?
2: Exactly. In a way that
1: maybe we weren't before. Maybe complacency had us not right. doing the things we should all be doing.
0: Yeah. No, that that's really well said. I think sometimes we talk about um, renaming this podcast, pushing the, the boulder up the hill. And um, I think last night was sort of that it felt like the boulder rolled down um, a little bit back. Um,
1: yeah, the hill might have gotten steeper. Right.
0: <laughs> One or the other. Maybe but. both.
1: It can still be pushed up the hill, I think.
0: Right, exactly. I think, like you're saying, the work goes on, um, and certainly our, um, our want and desire to, to sort of continue to make sure that the media that our children um, consume reflects the world that, that they live in and the America mm-hmm. that they live in. And, um, you know, at times you face challenges like this as a country and, and you go through them, um, you don't give up. So, um, I think it was, it was a rough night. Um, t- today was probably a rough day for a lot of folks, but, um, you know, that isn't going to stop us from, from continuing to sort of lay out the vision and sort of what we, what we want to see, um, our organization be able to do. And And like you said, our, our dig toolkit is sort of our first real piece of, of, um, putting something down that, um, that reflects that, that vision. So, mm-hmm. um,
1: and I think it's, we'll have a lot of progress and some announcements coming in the next few weeks that we'll be excited to share with exactly, people. Exactly. So the boulders moving, right? Exactly. We, we <laughs> didn't get flattened. So That's right. Sure. <laughs> That's exactly right.
0: Right, <laughs> right. So, um, so th- the other thing we wanted to talk about was actually a piece from our newsletter last week um, from our friends at Toka Boca. Um, they have a magazine that they publish pretty regularly. And this week's, or I guess, I think it's this quarter was about, it was called The Identity Issue, Behind the Scenes with, with Toka Life. And what it was was an interview with um, four folks who worked on um, Toka Boca, for folks who don't know, is a a company that that makes apps for children Um, and really they call it digital toys um, for for kids and they're fantastic apps and one of them um, they sort of have different series and the people they were interviewing um, were from the Toka Life series and so they have different apps that fall under this series there's Toka Life Town and Toka Life Vacation and so they Interviewed for the folks, um, elite artists, head of consumer products, play designer, and artist who do um, who sort of created the app. And what they talk about, Amy, is is really the considerations that they uh, went through when they were designing the characters of the app, and a real focus on diversity.
1: Mm-hmm. And for people who don't know these particular apps, basically. Um, very open exploration and kids can use the characters a bit like puppets and make them talk and do all these things. And so the characters that are on the screen are very much avatars for the child's play. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of like important to set that scene of like how kids play with it open ended and in places, like you said, like a town and being on vacation and how does that mean, um, what does that mean for kids who are playing it and what do they expect to see?
0: Right. Right. And I, I, the biggest thing that came out to me was how clear it was that they focus on like, you know, they, they said very clearly, we looked at things like gender balance, characters with darker and lighter skin colors, age and balance between human characters and fantasy characters. So again, it's, it's a really clear example of where they value diversity it reflects that down into the work that they're doing and the app then reflects sort of what what um, what they believe and so um, you know there there's a couple anecdotes in here but um, the toka life vacation was um, was really interesting where they were talking about families and sort of um, you know when when you're thinking of like sort of the default mode of, of when you're thinking about vacation is, there's a nuclear family, they're going on vacation. And right away, they were sort of like, no, like, you know, families come in all different, they use this really great word constellations. And so when they went out and designed the app, the experiences that you can sort of have with the app with these puppets is not, you know, there's certainly a nuclear family, but there's also a family that, that isn't nuclear, that that's different. And I I just think that was very well done and um i actually had an opportunity to to see it right before they were they were launching it was very hush hush but they um they asked us to come in and and sort of look at it and it was really amazing the work that they had put into it and the thought they had had, um given to to how family
1: should look yeah i also really loved their detail that no two characters share exactly the same skin tone and I have to just sort of like, I want to stick on that for a second, because from a production standpoint, you know, when you make an app, you've got your palette, the mm-hmm. artist is like sort of like sticking to a thing, here's your color story, and that's what you're creating assets from, to just go with that extra mile to do that, that it's not just like, here are the four color skin comes in, right. you know, I think is remarkable. Like, yeah. I, I, I really appreciate that point
0: right right and then one of the things we talk about with the dig toolkit is sort of having um a review board or sort of having someone to um to sort of look at the app as you go through the process to to sort of look at the different lenses of diversity and they talked about how their sort of entire um group that that created the vacation app had put it together and one of the artists noticed that um a lot of the hotel staff and cashiers had, you know, unintentionally turned out to be filled with dark skinned females. And so it was sort of just like building in the time to sort of look at that, having the artist catch it and then making that fix was, um, is, you know, it seems like it's a small change, but it's could be huge for a kid who's, who's seeing it and playing with it. So,
1: Mm -hmm. and again, that's just, It's not a huge amount of time, but it's so clearly baked into their entire process. Um, This is something I had an experience with, too, when we were working on games for Curious World for Houghton Mifflin. One of the things we, like all the teams involved, you know, from Houghton Mifflin to, you know, us and the developer working on it, you know, would would constantly make a point of, like, we really want to make sure we have diverse characters. We want to make sure we're representing a lot of different kids here. And we just had like this little maze puzzle type game, and the characters were no more than little tiny dots. Like that's it. That's all you could see is like right. little dots on the screen. Um, and it had completely gotten past me. It had gotten past a lot of people, but all the dots were white, you know. And and it was one of the programmers who caught it to say like, "Do you want to mix those up a little bit?" <laughs> and everyone's like, "Yes." Of course we do you know right. and I think like Tokoboko really gets that if you make a point of it in like a project wide way in a company wide way you know, all those little things that can just slip through the cracks just because of our own biases and, like, mm-hmm. how many assets you're reviewing at a time and, and things like that. Things like what you're saying, like, to have, like, all these worker characters be a right. certain type of person slips through the crack when you're just dealing with the volume of assets that you're creating for an app. So it's great. Yeah. It's really great. If you have all eyes on deck, so to speak, yeah. um, to look at this, you can really – Make a difference. Exactly.
0: Yeah. It's and then at the end they sort of ask them why do you think it's important um, to have a diverse set of characters and you know I loved every single one of the responses um, and you know you guys should definitely check out the article. I think the one that stood out was sort of um, you know where there, by showing kids there are many different types of people in the world that we live in by representing more than one type of people I believe where our inclusion style sends a message. There should be room in the world for everyone. In the end, it's about equality. I just really love that. And, like, each one of them sort of had a different thing to say, but it was really, really well said. And um, we're sort of continuing to harp on it, but it's clear that it's just sort of built into their DNA, and and that's always great to see. So, Mm -hmm.
1: I think one thing, too, is if you click over to the article, there's a picture of the four people that are being interviewed for it. They happen to all be white. Right. Right. Um, but when you click over to about Toka and they have photographs of their whole staff, the staff at TOCA is nicely diverse. Like they, they're clearly focused on it in a hiring practice sort of way too. Um, but I think that a takeaway there is too, like one we always have to think about like who's working behind the scenes. On the other hand, like whoever you are, you can make a difference mm-hmm. in doing this work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: So um so that we we wanted to to just cover that article and the election this week and then we have a great couple of guests coming up from common sense michael robb and asia williams and we're going to be talking about a recent report that they put together um it's case studies of media use among lower income minority youth and parents it's a mouthful but they have a lot to say and it's um it's a fantastic interview so stay tuned for that so as promised we have our friends from Common Sense Media here to talk about their recent uh, report on the case studies of media use among lower-income minority youth and parents we have Michael Robb who's director of research at Common Sense Media as well as Asia Williams, a doctoral student at George Mason University. Thanks so much for joining us today, guys.
2: Thank Thanks, you. For
0: here. So, I think we just wanted to sort of kick things off with um, introducing this report, sort of um, how you guys came up with this idea for for the study, and then um, sort of the methodology that you went about to to investigate.
2: Sure. Well, uh, last year. Common Sense Media released a a nationally representative survey of teens and tweens that we call a Common Sense Census that, among other things, found that lower-income youth and minority youth were spending more hours with digital media than their higher-income counterparts. Mm -hmm. So, for example, teens from lower-income families um, spent more time with media than those from higher-income families, uh, such that Kids in lower-income families were spending about 10 and a half hours versus about almost eight hours for children in lower-income families. Um, And then with regards to race and ethnicity, for example, um, African-American teens were using an average of about 11 hours a day of media compared with almost nine hours a day among Latinos and about eight and a half hours among um, white teens and tweens. Um, So the case studies that uh, are the subject of the report are really a closer look at the lives behind those numbers in media hours and our attempt to provide a window into how technology integrates into children's lives and how it affects their well-being. Nice. Um, and, uh, you know, because a lot of people, I think they, they get stuck on the number and they don't think so much about kids' real lives.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the things we, we wanted to actually break down a little bit more. Um, but maybe we'll, we' we I, I think it was interesting to sort of I think screen time sort of gets lumped together as one yeah. big as as a number. we can sort of dig into that a little bit more. But, yeah, if you want to talk through sort of the methodology for for this study,
2: yeah, sure. So this is very different than a lot of the other uh, research that we do at common sense media, um a lot of which is very quantitative and which is great at providing you know kind of a broad, comprehensive portrait of media use across. A big population. But this is qualitative research here. So the real goal is for us to be able to gain um, much more depth of understanding of youth media practices and not necessarily um, breadth or generalization. So the way we did this was that um, we recruited participants uh, between the ages of 11 to 15 uh, from three branches of a regional nonprofit organization in the Mid Atlantic. That serves children and youth, um, primarily through after-school and summer activities. Mm-hmm. Um, we recruited eleven total youth from nine different households. So our sample also included uh, two sets of participants who were siblings. Okay. And what the researchers did, and that researchers include um, Abigail Kanaposki and Asia Williams, who's on this uh, <laughs> on the podcast with us today. Um, what they did was they. Uh, did interviews with uh, each child, and they were extended interviews that really went in depth about what kids were interested in, what their favorite things to do were, how kind of tech fit in with their, um, their their lives with friends, their school lives, um, and their kind of family life. Um, part of that interview also included device tours, so that you've had an opportunity to kind of show researchers. You know what they were doing or what they like to do um, you know what be that on a smartphone or a video game or kind of whatever the preferred media was um, we also had the opportunity to talk to, talk to uh, a parent of uh, each of the participants um, and so we got a window into parents opinions about how media fit into uh, both their own lives and their children's lives okay and then we also did something called experience sampling which is we texted uh, all the participants over three days, five times a day uh, to get a very in the moment snapshot of what they were doing with technology at any given point. So you know five points during the day you might get a text that says, you know what are you doing right now? When was the last time you used technology? How are you feeling? And you know we do that so we can kind of get a something that's not based just on the recollections or on something that might be more prone to like a bias about, Know, right? Making yourself look good when you report what you're doing with technology, right. mm-hmm. um, and to match up with you know participants' own uh, accounts of how much time they said that they were spending with media, um, and so we, we kind of built that all together into you know pretty comprehensive portraits of each kid.
0: Really interesting stuff. So, um, so how long it was? Sort of three days. You you texted them over a three day um, period how long was like sort of the study? Was it that same three day period or was it longer to, to sort of observe their habits?
3: You know what, Kabira, I can uh, speak to that. Sure. Can you hear me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, the timing of the interviews and the timing of the experience sampling varied according to the, um, the teens and tweens that participated in the study. Sure. Uh, so um, the experience sampling definitely happened after the interviews were conducted um but the range of time between them uh, it was not consistent i see okay all of it the entire study took place within i think it was a two-month window
0: right right okay that makes sense yeah i'm I'm sure it's it's hard to sort of um to sort of do it in a in a, a framework that um to accommodate all the children is, is challenging, you know, all the kids. is challenging.
3: Experience sampling is definitely a very interesting, um, methodology. Uh-huh. Uh, because as Mike said, you are really trying to capture what's happening in the moment. Right. Um, and so there's the, the ideal of what would happen as you design a study. And then there's the reality of it. Mm-hmm. And reality would be that a kid doesn't have the phone turned on right or it's broken, or um, they lost it, or they forgot, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> they're
0: distracted, yeah, yeah. They're
3: distracted. Right. Um, so, you know, it's it's definitely a method to um, pursue further, because uh, I think it could really um, give a lot of rich data, as Mike said, about what are students, what are teens and tweens doing in the moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, preparing them ahead of time to just make sure like all the devices are working and, and you're really on board and you set an alarm for these times. I'm, I'm not sure what all the strategies could be, sure, but sure. yeah, the reality and the the design, there was a little bit of a mismatch.
0: Right, right. For sure. So uh, I know there were sort of eight big takeaways that, um, that came out from, from your study. And we certainly want to want to touch on as many as we can, I think um, you know what the 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 one you sort of lead with is overall. These practices are related to youth interests, parental practices, um, and then resources and living situation. So mm-hmm. um, can can we dig into that a little bit deeper on on what that like each one of those means?
2: Sure. So when we talk about youth interests and youth values. Um, we're talking about kind of different types of media users and which often reflect different kinds of things that they are interested in. So for example, some of the well actually, in the last year's census report that we released, we actually broke out different patterns of media usage based on what people reported they were doing the most and what they said they enjoyed doing. And so we had some kind of broad categories such as you know people were kind of more social networkers or more video gamers, more heavy viewers. Um, and so when we talk about youth interests and values, we're really talking a little bit more about um, kind of what's important to them. So for example, there were video gamers in the study who you know, were very um, engaged by gaming, really enjoyed talking about the, the challenges that came along with gaming and some of like the social interactions that occurred, um, You know how much they enjoyed like playing with their, their brother, for example, um, or the, the, the enjoyment you get with playing like really, really hard games. There were social networkers, in the study um who you know really identified the importance of social media and being able to um, connect with friends or connect with for example there was a uh, a girl in the study a 14 year old girl who lived in a foster uh with a foster family but used her phone to connect with her um with her birth mother and that was you know that was really important to her um and that was you know really much kind of evident through you know how, how she was using media and her interests. Um, In terms of parental practices and resources, um, you know, parents have their own kind of ideas of, you know, what they like to do with media and kind of like what media you should be like in the home. Some place greater value on some media practices than others. So for example, um, you know, we had a 14-year-old in the study who we referred to as a reader just by, you know, what she said she liked to do and how she identified, Mm -hmm. you know, the time that she spent reading. And she talked, you know, really nicely about, uh, you know, her mother being a bookworm and talking about trips with her mother to Barnes and Nobles to buy books. Right. Right. So that was partly that was something that was like very much um, uh, kind of enmeshed with those parental practices. Right. But then there was also the issue of like parental resources. Right. So not all parents have all the time or money to do the things that they necessarily want to be able to do around their kids media time. Um, some parents had a lot more flexibility in terms of monitoring their kids' use, and some really did not. Um, and there was certainly a, a variety in terms of, like, what kinds of access parents might have been able to provide depending on their kind of monetary resources. And then living situation um, was kind of the third component of that piece, um, thinking a little bit more about uh, literally, like, what is the physical living space that um, kids are in? Because if you are, you know, for example, that we had a uh, – We had a family with two kids who were living in a one-bedroom in a shelter, um, you know, in very close quarters, and that affected the kinds of interactions and the kinds of media engagements that, you know, they were involved in, and with the result being that, you know, one of the girls in that that one-bedroom apartment, you know, really liked to use media to create space for herself. Um, And so, you know, going back to the bigger, broader question, you know, when we say oh, gosh, you know, kids are spending so much time with media. That's, that is really just a number. Being able to understand all these kind of different components um, helps us, I think, kind of really humanize what that media use is like for, um, for different kids. Right. I
3: right. know for, right. Um, for Abby and me, one of the um, biggest realizations was that a lot of times a child's uh, media practices, um, it's really hard to put a child in a box and say that he or she is a certain type. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that type is dictated by circumstance and context. So we had one um, teen in the study who recently relocated, and when he was at home um, a few states away in the south living with his brother, he was a gamer. But when he relocated and his older brother didn't move in with him, he then became a heavy user and watched lots of television. I see. Uh, so, a lot of times we um sometimes we label kids, you know, we there's another kid in the study who's clearly a gamer. Mm-hmm. But in time, and as a result of me being able to spend time in that household, we then begin to see that he's also a reader. right? right. So the very first thing that he may tell you about is
2: mm-hmm.
3: his love of gaming. But through um you know, some interactions with the family, um, and just being in the space that the student, the child lives in, um, you'll notice other um, media use that they use media in other ways. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah for it, it, definitely seems like it's a, it's a fluid such. Um, it can be a, a fluid situation. I think you sort of touch on that, where you know location of media device, and and media and the type of media, then therefore the the type of media type the kid is um, all sort of impact how the, how they engage with media. Um, I think Amy, you were sort of curious on, um, the social networking piece is sort of touched on a little bit and sort of where that lies with, with the kids in terms of emotional state, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting. And again, we, we sort of started the conversation on this, that there's not just one kind of screen time. You know, I, parents often hear like, screen time, screen time, good, screen time, bad. But it was so interesting to draw out, especially as you guys talked about social media, for some kids, it was this connection to other important people in their life, to their friends. Like for other kids, like it didn't work out so well. It was like sort of like the path of bullying or, you know, things like that. How did you find like social media in particular among the kids in the survey? Could you talk more about that?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, so, like you said, I mean, even even social media amongst kids is used in, in different ways. But I think it's pretty clear when I look at these kids in, in the study that social media is often a, um, a way to connect with friends and families, uh, sometimes with people who live in different areas. Sometimes it's used, um, you know, as a way to experiment with different ways of kind of presenting themselves to the world or kind of crafting their own identity mm-hmm. um, outside of a, a face-to-face context, which I think is something that's difficult for, for some children. Um, and also, you know, for there were kids, I think, who identified as, you know, say that they, they might be so nervous in some face-to-face interactions with friends, um, you know, outside of school, but being able to interact with kids online um, was, was easier in some ways um, and just kind of like a regular, normal part of the day that, you know, you, you know I have a quote here that just, um, I'll pull it up for you. There's a girl who describes, a, you know, her typical Saturdays, you know, just throwing it, hanging out, I get on Google with somebody, you know, just normal. And then I just be going to sleep or something, you know, wake up, I'm cleaning, I'm texting people. It just kind of fits into the fabric of their day, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. in some ways that it's not like a, a separate thing, like now I'm going to be social networking. I mean, it really is just kind of part and parcel of, um, you know, have how they interact with their, their peers um, and with other family members. You, I, I, probably-
3: I wanted to just um, bring up the study of the, um, the two brothers, the siblings, mm-hmm. and their mm-hmm. social media use. And it was interesting to watch how the older sibling um, sort of modeled uh, cool social media practices, and you know he teases his brother who doesn't have as many followers on social media apps, and and this brother may never have the same degree of interaction um, online. Um, but there was a point where we were looking through, going through the tour of the device. And the older brother teases the younger brother and makes reference to, yeah, when I was your age, I used to post things like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet the older brother couldn't articulate what the differences were in the way he used social media as he aged. So there was you know, an idea that you, when you're little, you do it this way. And when you're more mature like me, you do it that way. Um, but yet uh, the awareness of it wasn't, um, wasn't there in a way that the students could the teens, I'm sorry, the teens could articulate.
1: Right. Right. It seemed like the parents had different viewpoints too. Like there were the parents who are like, this is really scary. You're going to meet somebody who's going to kill you. Um, or there's the, Mm -hmm. like, get out more, socialize with your friends, go on Snapchat. You know, like, did you really feel like there was a variety of parents? I think the parents
3: um, if we dug a little deeper and maybe extended the study, we may see a correlation between um, parent, um, their media practices, their level of um, how digital savvy they are mm-hmm. versus their comfort with their child's use of social media. Um, yeah. So the one parent who was, um, you know, going off of something she heard on the news and, you know, kick was shut down, she wasn't one of the more um, technically savvy parents as the other one who, you know, used the iPhone. She was actually playing Pokemon Go, at you know, during the interview, uh-huh. and she wanted her daughter to be more social.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and Asia, if I can, I mean, that brings up kind of another major theme throughout the paper, which is just the variety of kind of technological expertise that parents brought to bear um, in, in their families and, and with their kids, because some parents were much more comfortable with technology than others. But, you know, they all clearly had a you know, desire to do the best by their kids that they could using the technological expertise um, that they had. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was even one case, you're like a low tech parent calling up the phone company and putting in, like their account yeah. on hold. Like, well, ooh, that's really clever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> like everyone like, uh... finding sort of like their own path into how to limit set. Right. Right.
0: I also like the insight the parent. There was one parent where um, the child was like, I play like an hour a day or I have like screen time for an hour a day. And the parent was like, no, he's glued to that phone. Like he's (laughs) always
3: on the phone. I mean, you know what, honestly, I feel, I really feel as though teens and tweens, and I'm a a parent of two teens myself. Uh And I don't think they have a realistic understanding of how much time they spend with uh, a device. Uh-huh. Um, and so even, you know, a lot of it is self-report with the, stu- the teens and tweens in the study telling us how much time they spend, but yet you might get a different view from a parent. Right. So I yeah. think because media is so ubiquitous, it's such a part of who they are in it every day, that it's hard for them to really tease out how much time they spend um, with the device.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, if they're like, you know, opening if they're on their device to just like chat with their friends or like they're then they open Google Hangout and they sort of see it as like, no, this is just like what I do through my day. That's not screen time. Like, you know, yeah it's for sure that's they're. breathing yeah exactly. <laughs>
2: exactly you know it's funny people used to talk about like online and offline worlds and you know what you do online what you right. do offline and i think that is very generational
0: yeah. and maybe
2: even less so now but it is pretty clear that for the most part kids don't necessarily see a difference yeah. you know what they do online is it is what they do i mean they the virtual world is the world Right, so it's They're it's not as meaningful is. to yeah, try to for sure. you know to try to try to parcel out every minute of time they spend with free media. Again, it's that's why the just having a number it doesn't tell you I think exactly what you need to know about the role of media in kids'
0: lives. Right, right. One of the things that you sort of talk about is that there wasn't a lot of content creation happening. It's very much seems like they were consuming media, but there wasn't a lot of creation. Any, you know, Kabir, any, yeah. that's
3: um, that's a topic that really um, is one that I'm deeply interested in. Right. Um. And again, it uh, cuts across my own um, personal experience as a parent, as well as a researcher and a practitioner.
2: Sure.
3: And one of the things that Abby and I really had a struggle with is, well, what is the true definition of content creation? So if a student um, pulls up and takes a selfie and manipulates the image and puts stickers on it and posts it, is that a form of creation? Or are we talking more about design in an app or, um, you know, transcribing, um, music or drawing, you know, what, what is our definition of creation versus consumption. But, you know, with that said, uh, the children overwhelmingly did much more consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, and what was interesting to me was that they have opportunities to do lots of um, digital creation in the after-school setting, but yet uh, that did not come across in the interviews. Um, and so I began to wonder, um, you know, it's what's the role of uh, out-of-school time in mm-hmm. terms of fostering um, content creation for students, especially students in lower-income families?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I yeah. think there's, there's something there. Sorry, did you want to say something, Mike?
2: I was just, I mean, I was thinking, you know, there were instances in the report of, you know, somebody who was very interested in, like, being able to create music, you know, do mixing, create music. Another kid who was very interested in digital art, uh, maybe, like, 3D printing. The desire was there, but there wasn't always the, I think, technical know-how or support, even at the after school, Mm -hmm. um, or resources or time or, you know, things like on the parent end to be able to, like, help their kids pursue some of their digital interests. Because right. you know, they had access to kind of, I, I know I just made this distinction between online and offline, but uh, offline uh, creative pursuits in terms of, you know, engaging in writing or drawing or journaling or things like that, um, that you know, could have had digital outlets as well, but didn't necessarily, you know, it was not necessarily easy for kids to be able to uh, pursue those, um, those interests in, in digital ways or, you know, or through the after school um, or, I think that's yeah. it's, it's an opportunity, I think, for people to come together to, to help nurture some of those creative digital interests.
3: And I think um, in some instances, you know, there is a tremendous opportunity, but the crossover back into the home space or the school space so this whole notion of learning everywhere at any time is really critical. So I don't know if a lot of the parents even know of their um, digital content creation outside of school, and can say, "Hey, you know, since we have an iPad, why don't you go ahead and download GarageBand um, and show me what you can do?" Like, the, if when the communication isn't there in the different spheres of a um, a teen and tween's life, mm-hmm. then some opportunities are lost.
1: Can you speak more a little bit about that informal learning piece? Because in some kids, like some kids were going to like YouTube to learn something new, but other kids just weren't doing. And you saw that, I think, a little bit with the gamer kids of like some kids would play that way and some kids wouldn't like and how kids might be sort of like finding that on their own.
3: Yeah, it was interesting. We did find um, gamers who would go to wikis and um, different YouTube sites and they'd watch other people play games um, or find out information to learn. But we also saw one of the um, students, she is identified as a social media. She's heavily into dance. And so she used the Internet to go and learn new dances, new um, dance steps for cheer. Um, and then the other social networker, she would use the internet to learn how to do different hairstyles and makeup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even one of our readers who very rarely used um, digital media, she would actually access YouTube to learn how to do hairstyles for her doll baby. <laughs> and so it's it's really interesting to see that a lot of times um, kids are using YouTube as a learning tool.
0: Right. Like a DIY thing. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think you you sort of touched on that as they use it as a way to to solve problems. Um, or, or to figure things out. Um, any other sort of um, insights that, that you felt like were important or that surprised you as, as you gleaned through the through the study?
2: I mean what you know, one of my biggest kind of overall takeaways is that you know, these case studies are really great for understanding that kids are just, they're not a uniform group. You know, these are different kids who use media differently. And that depends very much on their age, their living circumstance, what they're interested in, what kinds of access they have, and all these other kind of considerations that we, we've touched upon. Um, and so, you know, as I go away from this and as I tell people about the work that we do um, and the work that Common Sense does, you know, I make sure to emphasize it again like just knowing the number of hours that a teen spends with media is really only a sliver of understanding what's a pretty complex media life. Um, and and that's something like I you know I think is a valuable message for anybody who wants to kind of voice their own judgments upon kids who are are users of media. I think it's very easy to be judgmental um, and have like a a bias, you know when you see like a teen texting or playing video games and um you know we, we form i think sometimes unfair opinions uh, right. of of kids,
0: yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think you have to dig into it for sure um Asia, you talked about how you you if you had a little bit more time or sort of if you, if you wanted to uh, elaborate on the study, you'd sort of look at maybe spend more time with the parents or sort of have different questions for the parents. Is there anything else you'd sort of or or how you guys are looking to sort of build on on what you have here
3: i uh- well, I'll just say some personal interests, sure. um, if I had more time, um, I may have, um, there were many interviews where I interviewed the parent and the student or Abby and I, we interviewed the parent and the teenager together. Uh-huh. And I would have tried to find opportunities to, um, you know, if it was okay with parental consent to separate Um, just to see what type of um, information would come out. Um, Because, you know, when a child is around a parent, he or she may say things differently, or parents may um, share other things. Um, The interplay between the two is definitely important. However, the separation also would be helpful. Um, And I I think uh, another thing that Abby and I really about was what are the differences between different times of the year? And so what are children's um, media practices during an academic year versus yep. in the summer mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and how do you tease that out? Yeah.
2: Yeah, that, that's a great point. That's a great point because I, I too would have enjoyed seeing, you know, if, if we were to do a follow-up to this at some point, cross my fingers, uh, to, to be able to go into the school or observe in school and maybe talk to some of the teachers that um, uh, that kids have and learn a little bit more about the kind of interactions between uh, kids, their schools, um, and and the home environment, uh, which I think is uh, I think it's just it's really really important.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The
2: uh, the
0: home to school, um, school to home connection is is critical. So um, that that would definitely be be interesting. Um, Amy, I know I have on my notes Wi-Fi access you wanted to ask. Yeah,
1: that's actually what I just wanted to bring up. Um, You know, there's a really fascinating part of one story. I think you mentioned these same kids in the beginning, the kids who live in the shelter. There was a story about the brother and sister competing for Wi-Fi at four Mm -hmm. o'clock in the morning. And that just like, you know, I'm a wreck reading that because... Um, you know, it's something we talk about at Diversity in Apps a lot is access and Internet connectivity. And I think, um, you know, you also talk about implications for practitioners and implications for media makers and the kinds of things like that, that media makers need to be thoughtful of. Do you have anything to say about like sort of like as we think about this audience, the implications of connectivity? Hey,
3: Mike. Um, I think this would be a great time to talk about um, the census and the findings as far as um, the digital divide in terms of connectivity.
2: Well, yeah, so when we did the the census last year, um, looking at this population, uh, and looking at the, the teen and tween population, you know, we were struck that there are still divides. Um, you know, even though some of the divides appear to be Closing, but there's there's still a pretty large what we call digital um, equality gap, especially in kind of ownership and access to things like computers, tablets, smartphones. But things that you know, in order to use them the way that you want to use them, you're going to need things like like Wi-Fi. Um, so it's still the case that you know if you are living in a higher income home, you're far more likely to have access to laptops or access to a smartphone or access to a tablet. Um, You know, in other research, they talk about a homework gap um, and how, you know, that can be contributing to kind of differing trend lines in terms of, like, how kids can um, succeed, you know, we're making it more difficult for some kids to succeed because they don't necessarily have the access or kind of consistent quality access, even if they do have access, um, to be able to do the things that they need to do um, to be successful in school in ways that other kids just don't even have to think about. Right. Um, so I think there's, you know, that's, that's an issue that still needs to be
3: addressed. It's also amazing to see how kids could be so resourceful. Um, and so if they have a device, but yet the access is not there at home, or the access is um, not reliable or it's slow, yeah. they can um, find that access at, you know, a fast food restaurant, or um, if it's a household where they uh, the father is not there and they um, visit on the weekends, maybe. At dad's house, there's Wi-Fi. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're, they're pretty um, savvy about where to find it when they don't have access to it. Yeah, but is.
1: it's a scrambling, not all kids yeah. need to.
2: I mean, savvy, yes. I mean, it, but it's unfortunate that somebody has to wake up at 4 a.m. to get good Wi-Fi.
1: Right. That
2: is so true. That
3: definitely was, um, you know, and that was a a hard... A hard thing to hear, and you know you could see the eagerness and the the these two students. Um, I am sorry, I keep saying students because I well, they are students, yeah, the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the um the two tweens who lived in the shelter, um, they were so disappointed when their phones couldn't access. Um, when Jaden's phone couldn't access the McDonald's Wi-Fi, you know, and it's that eagerness, um, to use my phone, um, to, um, show me different things and, and just the desire and, and wanting to have it and the disappointment when, um, knowing that you can't always get it when you want it.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. That, I I think, you know, the the kids will find a way, but, um, you know, I I think there has to be sort of a, a clear path for, um, to, to make sure they have the resources. want Mm -hmm. people getting up at 4 a.m. to get their wi-fi so um this was uh this was really interesting um was i think amy we covered the uh the sort of pieces that we that we found did i uh did i miss anything it looks like my notes we checked everything right Mm -hmm. yeah so um we really appreciate your your guys's time and, and sort of walking us through this we'll make sure that we link to it um, in our show notes, um, is there do you, is can you share with us any other sort of reports that you may have in works or um, anything that we can expect over the you know by the end of the year? Yeah and actually
2: if I could also just do you know, kind of one sum up note or thought sure. just about this before we wrap it up yes. um, you know I think one of the things that Asia and Abby did such a great job of and they um, noted in the report as an implication for um, practitioners who work with lower income minority youth and families was that talking to youth about media use and their devices and what's on them and what they like to play and what they like to do is a great way to learn about the kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you're asking kids, you know, and you're genuinely curious. You generally want to know, like, what are you watching? What are you playing? Um, that, that gets a great venue just for getting kids talking about their lives, and it gives you insights that go really well beyond, you know, just thinking about, you know, how much media they're using or what media that they're using. Because you're learning also about like who their friends are, what, what their concerns are, yeah. what they like to do, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's just it's it's a really good implication for people who are working with youth. Um, again, thinking about not just demonizing media use. Sure. Um, and to your other question about, uh, you know, what's coming up. Common Sense Media, I mentioned, uh, you know, we do a, a yearly snapshot of media use and attitudes and behaviors of different populations. Last year we did one, the Common Sense Census of teens and tweens. Uh, this coming December, on December sixth, we'll be releasing the Common Sense Census, uh, plugged in parents of tweens and teens. So we've, uh, you know, we're going to actually talk to the parents now, <laughs> and then next year we'll be um, going back to to talk to. Um, or to look into zero to eight-year-olds, um, and we do these things every four years so we can track changes over time. Right. So uh, that's what's coming up next.
0: That's great. We'll uh, we'll have to uh, make sure we get you on in in early December uh, when the report comes out so we can uh, we can talk through that as well. Um, once again, we uh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for
1: uh, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us.